The Lord be with you. It's Michael Solomink of Lutherans for Life with the Life-Minded Podcast, equipping gospel-motivated voices for life. eagerly awaiting a vaccine for COVID-19. It seems life may only return to the normal we once knew when we discover and distribute a vaccine. Many of the world's largest pharmaceutical manufacturers are already developing them. However, several of the front runners are using tissues taken from aborted babies. In fact, many vaccines come from fetal tissues obtained in abortions or even vivisections and may contain traces of their DNA. What science lies behind vaccines? Vaccines deliver a special kind of medicine that targets viruses. Scientists first identified viruses as infectious agents at the end of the 19th century. The word virus comes from the Latin term for poison. Planet Earth contains more viruses than any other life form, but optical microscopes can't see them because they measure a hundred times smaller than most bacteria. Individual virus particles have a simple structure that consists of a protein sheath, which encapsulates a strand of genetic material in the form of DNA or RNA. Viruses also mutate, and this allows them to acquire the ability to infect different species, since most plant viruses can't affect animals, and most animal viruses are harmless to human beings. But viruses don't metabolize or grow or undergo respiration or reproduce through cell division like other living germs do. Instead, like parasites, viruses require living host organisms in order to propagate. Viruses can infect any type of living creature, including microscopic organisms such as bacteria, amoeba, and parasites themselves. Now, viruses work by contacting and attaching to living cells. There are proteins on the virus surface that bind and fuse with the cell's membrane through a reaction with a specific chemical receptor. Multiple virus particles can stick to a single cell membrane. The genes of the virus then pass into the cell and hijack its machinery to manufacture thousands of the virus components. These components then locate each other and link up. They cause the host cell to rupture and scatter the new virus particles to the surrounding cells and tissues. An organism's immune system has to dispatch antibodies, which are special soldier cells designed to envelop and dissolve foreign substances in order to neutralize this invasion. When the viruses fabricate faster than the antibodies, it can interfere with the body's vital functions. The accumulation of virus particles particles, dead cells, antibodies, and accompanying fluids produces the disease symptoms. Some human viruses trigger only mild illness, such as the common cold, while others, like Ebola and HIV, generate serious and lethal conditions. Vaccines artificially stimulate the immune response. They prompt our insides to make the right antibodies before we face the real infection. That way, when we do get exposed, we can easily eliminate those intruders without suffering the disease symptoms and its dangers. Vaccines use deactivated virus particles or their particular proteins as decoys. This requires first that technicians identify and isolate the virus they want a vaccine for. Since viruses can't multiply without 
living tissue, researchers have to take virus from the human being it's inhabiting, then concentrate it, filter out impurities, and transfer it to a laboratory cellular medium. Then they use the virus mutation abilities against itself. They gradually adjust the conditions in which it's growing, such as temperature or tissue type. As the virus adapts to this new environment, each generation of it relies on different genetic characteristics, while forfeiting the ones that aren't important anymore. And it becomes less tolerant to the previous environment. In essence, it can't replicate as quick or as well in the standard human body. We call this process live attenuation. That's a fancy word for weakening the virus without killing it. Other approaches grow only the distinctive virus surface protein or genetically engineer the virus to duplicate defectively. A facility has to formulate large enough quantities of the impaired infection to administer doses to entire populations. And they add adjuvants. Those are compounds that provoke the immune system not to ignore the less threatening virus. They also mix in liquids to facilitate injection and preservatives to make sure it remains effective during transport and storage. Now all these extra ingredients go by the name of excipients and they involve traces of things like sugar, salt, baking soda, citric acid, or also aluminum, mercury, gelatin, MSG, and even leftover formaldehyde from the synthesizing process. Clinical trials come next first on animals and then in human subjects to ensure the vaccine's safety and effectiveness. If it's successful, our government will recommend and even mandate vaccination for everyone's benefit and because we hope eventually to achieve herd immunity. Herd immunity means enough of us get vaccinated that the virus spread slows or stops. And even those who don't get vaccinated likely won't contract it. Then we can retire the vaccine and declare the virus eradicated, as we have with smallpox. So what do abortions have to do with it? Well, as we said, viruses can't grow without living tissue. Adult human cells might have defects. They might bring along other microbes or they might suppress the anticipated infection. Furthermore, obtaining suitable tissue specimens, especially from internal organs, proves not only invasive but dangerous and sometimes deadly to the subject. So in the 1950s and 60s, researchers turned their attention to human fetuses. Those involved Involved in laboratory cell culturing believed that younger cells had fewer flaws, that they grew faster, and that they lived longer. Scientists found a plentiful supply of these cells in elective abortions, from outside of the United States, of course, as at this time such procedures had not been decriminalized domestically. To prevent deterioration, they had to procure and preserve the target tissues within five minutes of the abortion itself, which required a prior arrangement with both the mother and the abortion practitioner. In some cases, the embryo's heart was still beating when it was received by the researchers. And in other cases, they delivered the premature infant intact in the amniotic sac. Scientists at pharmaceutical outfits wanted not just to experiment on an individual kidney or liver, but to cultivate the samples into cell lines, literally tons of tissue as a substrate and stock for future testing. The Wistar Institute at the University of Pennsylvania achieved the first success and called it WI-38. WI signifies the site 
Wistar Institute, and 38 stands for the trial number. 37 previous attempts to yield a viable cell line failed, involving 21 separate aborted babies. Most of these procedures the doctors did not perform because of any underlying illness or other medical reason, but simply for the mother's preference, and many of them with the express intention of enabling these experiments, as reported by the specialists themselves and records from the Centers for Disease Control. The one cell line that worked came from Sweden, and she never got to have a name other than WI-38. They harvested her lung cells at 14 weeks. This cell line finds its first commercial use in the production of a vaccine for rubella. Rubella is a sickness with minimal symptoms, if any, except that it can cause birth defects when contracted in early pregnancy. During the 1964 rubella epidemic, some physicians in Pennsylvania began advising rubella-positive pregnant patients to abort. Wistar Institute technicians dismembered 67 of these children, in addition to the 22 before, when they successfully collected the live virus. This first human fetal diploid cell strain, WI-38, still in use today, has also contributed to vaccines for adenovirus, chickenpox, measles, mumps, and shingles, along with untold other science projects. You can purchase a quantity of it for a couple hundred bucks. However, like all cells, these ones weaken with age. Their usefulness ceases after 40 to 60 passages. That's 40 to 60 generations of cell division from the original. Furthermore, the laboratory that developed them owns them and only makes them available at a cost. So in September 1966, the United Kingdom government's Medical Research Council made the second human fetal diploid cell strain, MRC5 from the lungs of a little boy at 14 weeks gestation, aborted due to mom's psychiatric issues. From this line have come vaccines for chickenpox, hepatitis A and B, typhoid, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, shingles, and smallpox. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration details that some of these vaccines do contain traces of the baby's DNA. Now, WI-38 supplies are diminishing, and the MRC5 cells have reached their passage limit. Also, the market for lines and vaccines is still calling as it did in 1973, when a Dutch unborn baby girl died at 16 weeks gestation, so they could fabricate HEK-293. That's human embryonic kidney. 293. It's currently participating in the quest for a COVID-19 vaccine. The same professor also engineered another cell line called PER.C6. It came from the retina of a little one at 18 weeks in 1985, but the records don't even recall the sex. Scientists in China ended a 12-week female's life and nine more to get a line called Wallvax2 in 2015. In a moment, We'll consider the ethics of vaccines using aborted fetal tissue and the unintended consequences. You're listening to Life Minded from Lutherans for Life.
Tired of social media negativity? Post some hope and share some joy with Lutherans for Life's Life Quotes. Bite-sized, gospel-motivated reflections about the sanctity of human life from a variety of cultural voices. We've got a fresh life quote for every week of the year. Keep your friend feed life-minded. Leave a life quote as a phone message or send them as uplifting emails. Encourage your congregation with life quotes in newsletters and bulletins. Download life quotes free at lutheransforlife.org and share life today. Did you know Lutherans for Life has a blog? You don't know what a blog is? Don't worry about it. If you're looking for the best blog about life issues, Lutherans for Life has it. Life on the web at lutheransforlife.org. We survey and curate the internet's ongoing conversation to bring you the best commentary from dozens of life-affirming outlets. We read the whole World Wide Web so you don't have to, and we'll keep you updated every few days. Life on the web, the Lutherans for Life blog. Read now at lutheransforlife.org. Welcome back to Life Minded, the podcast of Lutherans for Life, equipping gospel-motivated voices for life. I'm Michael Solomink. Today, we're exploring vaccines involving abortions. We've listened to the science behind vaccines and learned what aborted fetal tissue has to do with them. Now we're looking at the ethical concerns. Don't we want to derive something good from someone else's evil? Abortion happens anyway, the argument goes. Parents and doctors discard the babies as medical waste, as uterine contents or products of conception. So why not get some benefit out of it? If a child dies in another way, say an accident or natural causes, don't we donate healthy organs to save someone else's life? In the case of vaccines, we can save hundreds of millions of others. Well, how about an analogy? Homicide also happens regularly. Now we could feed starving populations with the cadavers of murder victims. Yet, no civil society and no sensible person supports this pursuit. Intuitively, we understand that ends do not justify means. Only when an evil act is already unavoidable, and when no other way is available to achieve the good, and when the good does not cause or contribute to accomplishing the evil, only then will we reasonably entertain accepting benefit from the evil. Even though everyone agrees about alleviating hunger, better alternatives exist than cannibalism. And anyway, homicide isn't unavoidable. Furthermore, the costs of cannibalism well outweigh any profit from it. People might get the impression you can view your neighbor as food, and it could create a market for massacres. In the same way, better alternatives exist both to abortion and to abortion-dependent vaccines. Several adult and even animal cell models have established themselves as superior to the fetal human diploid cell strains. In some cases, we even have better alternatives to vaccines altogether for attaining immunity. And the aborted tissue cell lines don't constitute a morally neutral act any more than cannibalism does, because the researchers participated in arranging, perpetuating, and quite possibly executing the abortions in question. Even their good intentions can't redeem the intrinsically evil act. But someone will respond, don't we have a moral obligation to protect our children and our neighbors from disease? This just confuses the baby with the bathwater. How does offering one life in exchange for another, or a multitude of others, differ from human sacrifice? a brutal superstition that is abhorred the world over. Do we really believe that trading the violence of disease for the violence of abortion saves us? 
At least epidemics unite us against a common enemy, but making medicines out of our little ones turns us against each other and we become the aggressors. For that matter, why not designate the bodies of terminal toddlers or kids with disabilities or orphaned adolescents as martyrs for medical advancement? And if these sources don't suffice, if aborted baby supply should ever fall short of vaccine manufactured demand, could we compel mothers to abort? Would we compensate women into conceiving with the blatant aim of aborting for research purposes. We can prevent the possibility of disease transmission entirely by putting a child or a neighbor to death. But do we want to live in a context where we equate getting rid of a problem with getting to its solution? Killing people can eliminate all kinds of difficulties, but it only creates more sinister ones in their place. What unintended consequences or side effects come from this situation? Well, we have seen how it has incentivized the initial abortions, and it has since led to additional abortions with each new cell line, not to mention its effect on cultural acceptance of elective abortion itself. It's easing the conscience with the promise of an honorable outcome from an otherwise objectionable endeavor. Greed drives the situation at least as much as need, since a great deal of money changes hands because of formulating, manufacturing, mandating, and marketing vaccinations worldwide. It's also gotten us comfortable in general with the idea of experimentation that utilizes human bodies and unborn ones, so that future such research ventures may not even have to connect so directly to saving lives. One has to wonder what precedents we have set with this practice. It certainly undermines our collective respect for other human bodies, in fact, for all of them, when we use one for spare parts or raw materials, and we mutilate and mince and liquefy and dissolve a member of our same species. And it violates our protections for informed consent which international consensuses dating back to the post-Holocaust Nuremberg Code have insisted upon as essential to any acceptable and responsible medical experiments. Not only did the aborted baby never agree to the abortion, not one of the innumerable individuals involved in researching, producing, regulating, or dispensing vaccines ever either asked or even informed the little one about the process. Have we reverted to slavery? Just a little more sophisticated and reduced certain human beings, the weakest ones in fact, to contracts and transactions and not merely private but public property. Can't we do better? With such high stakes, we've taken to uncritically exalting vaccines to a savior status they have not necessarily earned. Several of the diseases that vaccines treat lead only to mild symptoms in most cases, and the majority who suffer the infection recover naturally. Some evidence exists that rates and severity of some of these diseases were already declining before the vaccines became available, and the vaccines themselves can cause illness, injury, or even death. The United States government government has an entire department devoted to dealing with these adverse events, which number in the thousands and tens of thousands annually. In a moment, we'll investigate what actions we can take about the connection between vaccines and aborted fetal tissue. You're listening to Life Minded from Lutherans for Life. 
question. What's that Bible verse about the sanctity of human life? Answer? It's all of them. Life Thoughts in the Church here helps you hear the sanctity of life throughout Scripture. Lutherans for Life's Life Thoughts listen to each week's lectionary readings with life ears and apply God's Word to life hurts. Download free at lutheransforlife.org. Have you ever wondered how to raise life-affirming kids? Would your Lutheran Day School like to share the sanctity of life in age-appropriate ways? Owen's Mission is the answer. Owen's Mission is a special project of Lutherans for Life. We'll present your Lutheran School with a set of four touch-of-life fetal models. They're the same gestational models that medical experts use. Your students and instructors will see and feel and believe that God creates, redeems, and calls every human life to be His own precious treasure. We don't mention abortion or bring up sex, just the wonder, worth, and purpose that God puts into all of us, no matter what our age or appearance or abilities. Learn more at lutheransforlife.org. Owen's mission at lutheransforlife.org. Welcome back to Life Minded, the podcast of Lutherans for Life, equipping gospel-motivated voices for life. I'm Michael Solomink. Today we're inquiring about vaccines and aborted fetal tissue. We've investigated the science behind vaccines and their connection to abortions. We've reviewed the ethical concerns and the unintended consequences. Now we're turning our attention to taking action. So we shouldn't vaccinate? Please don't conclude we should avoid vaccines. Of course, we want to voice our opposition to abortion as both immoral and harmful. And we want to advocate against producing vaccines from aborted fetal tissue, as well as against procuring aborted fetal tissue for any other experimentation. We can also inform and educate our congregation and community leaders, our elected representatives, our medical caregivers, and those we know and love about how vaccine discovery and distribution has historically depended upon abortions. We can also examine the risks of vaccines and the risks of their corresponding diseases before deciding to undergo inoculation or allowing our children to do so. We can ask our physicians to locate and dispense for us ethically sourced vaccine formulas since almost all of the ones that make use of aborted fetal tissue also come in versions that don't. We may express our support for legislation that secures religious exemptions to mandatory immunizations or removes those requirements altogether. We may encourage pharmaceutical researchers and manufacturers to pursue alternatives to fetal tissue research and develop vaccines without any involvement in abortion. Finally, we rejoice in God's grace and trust his word and his ways, both to forgive us for any past ignorance or offenses against his commandments and his creatures, and to deliver us from every threat to body and soul, as he alone provides in his time, through his means, and according to his good and gracious will, all that we need to sustain this life and raise us to life everlasting. For Lutherans for Life, I'm Michael Solomink. For more information about the joy of the gospel and the sanctity of life, visit www.lutheransforlife.org. That's www.lutheransforlife.org. Until next time, thank you for listening to Life Minded. And remember that great minds think of life.